All right, well, we're in Acts chapter 2, so if you have your Bible or your device with an app on it, go to Acts 2. We're in this series, in this action-packed book of the New Testament, which I love, and uh, Acts 2 describes the birth of the very first Christian church, right, and the beginning of the Christian movement that would begin there in the city of Jerusalem and then expand outward and eventually impact the entire world ultimately reaching us. And so we should be grateful for the events of Acts chapter 2. There's a study guide in your worship folder. If you haven't pulled that out yet, you'll want to do that so you can track with me this morning. What we see in this chapter is the birthday of the church and that it included a sermon, the first of many sermons recorded in the book of Acts, which is probably why preachers love this book so much. This sermon here delivered by the Apostle Peter, is truly remarkable. It's the very first Christian sermon, and it contains the core message of our faith, the core message of Christianity. And for ease of digestion, we're going to take it in bite-sized chunks, okay? So it's going to take us two sermons to cover his one sermon, but we'll do it in two weekends, so relax. Let's remember what prompted Peter to stand up and start speaking in the first place. Remember, it was those supernatural events, right, that had just occurred on this day of Pentecost. Earlier that same day, events that accompanied the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember this? The followers of Jesus, numbering 120, gathered in that large home. All of a sudden, the sound of a mighty rushing wind fills the room where they were. And then tongues, it says, as of fire, appeared over each one of them, and they were filled with the Spirit of God. And it says they began to speak the wonders of God in other languages, languages that they had not previously known, dialects, regional dialects. And and so there's this commotion going on, and it got so loud that, that the neighbors were disturbed, and they decided they needed to come on over and see what was happening, plus Uh, All those folks who were in Jerusalem for this festival started to get curious as well. And they all began to make their way towards this house wondering, what in the world is going on here? And as they heard these Galileans, these uneducated and unsophisticated Galilean followers of Jesus speaking in many different languages, the crowd became even more perplexed. And their question was this, what does this mean? We hear this going on. What does it mean? Some were able to dismiss it by just claiming that that these people were all drunk. (laughs) But others were not satisfied with that that explanation. And that's when Peter stood up, it says, with the other 11 disciples, and he began to speak. Verse 14, it says that Peter lifted up his voice and addressed them. That means he got loud. And some people like their sermons loud. (laughs) Amen. Thank you. (laughs) And I might get loud. Who knows? Well, his sermon needed to be loud because there were no audio amplifiers in those days. And so if he was going to be heard by a crowd of thousands of people without having a microphone, then he had to belt it out. He had to raise the decibel level. And that's exactly what he did. Peter. Yes, this is Peter, that same fellow who just a few weeks before 
had denied that he even knew Jesus, remember? During the night of Jesus' trial, warming his hands by the fire there in the courtyard, a little servant girl, by a single little comment, had sent him scurrying into the shadows, (laughs) trying to save his own hide. He'd abandoned Jesus in his time of greatest need. But here now, less than two months later, here he is standing up in front of a crowd of thousands of people, some of whom were the same people who had called for the execution of Jesus. And he looks them squarely in the eye and loudly tells them the truth. That shows you what a resurrected Savior can do in the life of an individual. It shows you what the filling of the Holy Spirit can do to transform someone The coward had become a rock, as Jesus had predicted. And so this first Christian church was born out of his sermon that day, a sermon prompted by the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit. And in this first part that we're looking at today, we can see that it kind of breaks down into two sections. So let's talk about each of these for a minute. First, there is an emphatic denial. Verse 14, again, of Acts 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifts up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And as I read that, it occurs to me that good preaching will often seek to correct the current cultural narratives that are being put forth as reality. That's what Peter was doing here. He says, listen up, people, pay attention. What you hear being offered up by some of your friends here as the most plausible explanation for these events, it's just not true. It makes no sense. In fact, he infers that their explanation is kind of ridiculous. Come on, folks. It's early. You, You haven't even had breakfast yet who gets drunk before nine o'clock in the morning in that culture (laughs) nobody and so he says what you see here today has nothing to do with alcohol he's undercutting a a a narrative that was circulating around throughout the crowd and, and good preaching does that sometimes right in fact when I got to thinking about it I realized that the rest of Peter's sermon will actually correct some of the prominent cultural narratives of our day. Common ways of thinking about God and about Christianity that are constantly being put out there as reality. Thoughts like events of 2,000 years ago matter very little for our lives today. That's ancient history. Who cares? Or history's not really headed anywhere. History is just unfolding kind of randomly. There's no plan or scheme or purpose to history. Or, if the Bible is true, then the God of Christianity must be a barbaric, racist, sexist, misogynist. Or, this idea that Christians have that someday everybody's going to stand before God in judgment, that's just ridiculous. That's an outdated, archaic, laughable notion. Or, Salvation, if there even is such a thing, should be understood in terms of individual achievement and personal self-actualization, not deliverance from divine judgment. That 
idea is repugnant. What we're going to see is Peter's sermon, Peter's 2,000-year-old sermon, is going to counter each of these postmodern notions. And I believe biblical preaching needs to still do that today. It needs to expose and challenge the common lies that people of our culture believe. And it must do something else, right? It must provide the truth. It must provide the alternative. It must provide God's perspective on the situation. Preaching that is biblically sound and and biblically faithful must expound the scriptures and declare, here's what God says about this. Here's how our creator defines reality. Here's God's view of what's going on. That's what Peter does in the balance of this sermon on Pentecost. He gives the scriptural explanation. He said, look, these these people are not drunk. No, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, I'm a preacher. I love to preach. You guys know that. But the truth is, here's the truth. I would have nothing to say if we didn't have the Bible. If we didn't have the scriptures, honestly, I'd have nothing to say. Sometimes people come up to me after church and say, hey, Pastor Steve, that was a nice sermon. And sometimes I'll respond, well, thank you. I just know that I have good material to work from. The word of God. And Peter's sermon was saturated with the word of God. He quotes Old Testament scripture here, probably from memory. I mean, I don't think he was like, where's my scroll? Where's my scroll? Oh, no. I actually believe he'd been going over these Old Testament passages during the prior 10 days. Why wouldn't he? I mean, Jesus had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? Wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And that, what Jesus had said, it just reinforced what the Old Testament scriptures had taught. If I was Peter, that's what I would have been doing, looking for clues in the Old Testament as to how this was going to come about. In any event, the famous promise of the Holy Spirit coming from Joel 2 was on the tip of his tongue, and he just lets it fly. Verse 16. But this, this that you see going on here today, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and here it is. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Remember, what the gathered crowd was asking each other was, what does this all mean? These phenomena we see taking place here, what does it mean, this howling wind and, and this fire that's appeared and these people speaking in all of these other languages that they, they didn't know? What does it mean? Peter repeats Joel's prophecy in order to reveal God's explanation for what this all means. And basically he says, look, here's what this means. Here's what Pentecost means, and I want to share it with you. Number one, it means 
that prophecy has been fulfilled. Prophecy has been fulfilled. This that you're seeing here today on this day of Pentecost, these strange supernatural phenomena, this is something God predicted many centuries ago through his prophet Joel. That's what Peter was saying. This is evidence that God is making good on his promise to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. Just know that this was radically different than the way things had been under the old covenant, right? Under the old covenant, it could not be said that God's people all had the Holy Spirit. Now, certain people did, like some judges and some rulers and some priests, selected people who were given the Spirit for a period of time to complete a certain task. But when that was completed, the Spirit often would depart, would leave them. But God, through his prophet Joel, was declaring, one day that's going to change. God was going to alter how his Spirit's presence and power was distributed to his people. Those little tongues of fire that were seen dividing and being distributed over each of those 120 individuals, that signified that the day had arrived, the day of this change, the Spirit of God was being poured out on every single individual believer. It was the dawn of a new era, wasn't it? In the grand program of God. And that was a very powerful thing. And did you notice that the Lord through Joel, went to great lengths to be very clear that there was going to be no discrimination in this outpouring of the Spirit. Did you notice that? No gender discrimination. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. No age discrimination. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall what? Dream dreams. Young and old, male and female, and there would be no distinction between socioeconomic classes. He says, even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Not just the masters, but the servants. And I can, I can see in my mind's eye P Peter basically looking at this crowd and saying, look around. Look at us, this group of 120 followers of Jesus. Don't you see men and women? Don't you see little kids and teenagers and 20-somethings and 30-somethings and older seasoned citizens? <laughs> Don't you see masters and servants here? All of them have the Spirit. All of them have fire on their heads. All of them are speaking in other languages. And Peter was saying, I'm telling you, this is what the Lord predicted through Joel many centuries ago. It's happening right now. God is pouring out His Spirit on all of His followers with no distinction, and it is Awesome. And we see that in this new era there was to be a, a heightened intensity and manifestation of the Holy Spirit's activity, right? Believers, Christians of every age, of every stripe, hearing from God and proclaiming His truth to others. Now, I grew up in a church where I was taught that these particular manifestations mentioned here, dreams, visions, 
prophesyings. I was taught that those were relegated to the first century, that they were reserved, restricted for the apostolic era, which ended with the end of the first century, and that that then they kind of went dormant. They're not really for today. That's what I was taught. They're not really for today, but someday they're going to reappear in the kingdom age when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. That's what I was taught and believed for many years. I'm not so sure about that view now. We all have the Spirit, right? We all have the Spirit. What if the Holy Spirit desires to speak to our sons and daughters through dreams and visions? Man, I say bring it on. (laughs) Bring it on, Holy Spirit! If you want to speak to my sons and their daughters, have at it! What if he moves them to prophesy his message to other people? Would I object to that? No way. (laughs) What if the Spirit of God sees fit to reveal himself or his plans in a special way to our senior citizens? I'm okay with that. I'd love that because I'm almost one. (laughs) Like, yes! Look, I know we have the Bible And the Bible is indeed our supreme authority. You know me. I'm a Bible guy, right? No dream or vision or prophetic word is on par with Scripture. In fact, they should be tested by Scripture, is what the Scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5. But I'm not comfortable any longer confining God to a dispensational box that restricts Him from talking to someone in a personalized way. The idea for doing this very series in Acts, I believe, came to me from God. Convinced of it. So I say, let's not be closed off in our minds. Let's not construct mental compartments that prevent God from giving us what he may very well have for us in this age of the Spirit. In fact, let's ask him to give us everything he wants us to have. That's where I'm at. Speaking of a new age, Peter says that Pentecost not only means that ancient prophecy has been fulfilled, secondly, it means that the last days have begun. I mean, that's how he started the prophecy from Joel. Starts out, and in the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The last days. So what's this all about? The last days of what? (laughs) Did Peter believe he was in the last days? And if he was in the last days 2,000 years ago, what are we in? (laughs) I'm sure you realize there's a lot of debate about this in Christian circles. There are different views on this. So like I did last week on the topic of speaking in tongues, I'm going to give you my current understanding while acknowledging I may not have it right. And I want to challenge you to study this on your own and and come to your own conclusion, formulate your own conviction about this. So here's what I believe currently, as of 9.52 this morning. (laughs) The last days is a, a span of time 
in God's plan that was inaugurated, generally speaking, with the coming of Christ, and specifically when Christ sent his spirit on the day of Pentecost, because that's what Peter said. This is that. I'm in pretty good company holding that view. What it means for us is that God's clock is ticking. His clock is ticking. He has a plan. He's working it out in history, and he's working it out according to his timetable. This term, the last days, is seen often in the Old Testament. I've got a a number of those references there for you on your study notes. The last days in the Old Testament nearly always referred to that period in history when Messiah would come and set up his earthly kingdom. If you know your Bible, you know that Jewish readers of the Old Testament often did not understand that there would actually be two comings of Messiah. They could have understood it. Some did. It could be inferred from the fact that when it was presented in the Old Testament, there were two different purposes for the coming of Christ. One was to come as a suffering servant where he would atone for the sins of the people, right? And then there was also a reference to his coming as king, as the mighty monarch to establish his kingdom. Looking back on that now from our vantage point, we realize, well, that's two comings. That's two comings. He came the first time as the suffering servant, the ultimate sacrificial lamb to hang on a cross and bear the sins of humanity and atone for their sins, But his offer of the kingdom was rejected, right? He wasn't the kind of king the Jews had anticipated and were looking for. And so we know that those Old Testament prophecies referring to the last days of Messiah coming to set up his kingdom is still yet to come. A second coming. We can see that. So this, in in my view... We today are living in this period, the last days, that period that takes place between these two comings of Christ. When does the last days end? Well, Scripture is clear. It ends with a season of supernatural signs, cosmic wonders in the heavens that signal to humanity that Christ is about to return as king and as judge. And that phrase, the day of the Lord, that we see in this prophecy, almost always refers to a time of judgment, that God will come and judge. You notice there's a second part to Joel's prophecy that did not seem to happen on the day of Pentecost. Did you notice that? The first part did. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. But then there's this second part that didn't seem to happen on that day, but Peter went ahead and included it anyway. Verse 19, God speaking, I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Did that happen on the day of Pentecost? The upheaval of the heavens? So when Peter said to the crowd, this is that, he apparently meant the first part of the prophecy, but not the second. No record of any of these wonders in the heavens or signs on the earth happening on that day of Pentecost. That would come later. And of course, what we want to know is when. (laughs) When? When will this happen? 
And again, there are several views. So I've taught on this before, but let me just kind of do an overview quickly of this. Some people believe that all of this judgment, sun being darkened, moon to blood, the heavens being shaken, some believe that that already happened back in the first century. These are called the preterists. This is the preterist viewpoint. I have pastor friends who hold this view. They contend that the language being used here is Jewish apocalyptic language. I agree with them. Blood, fire, smoke, the heavens being rattled and shaken. They believe that in this context, this was figurative imagery meant to portray a judgment that was very soon coming on the nation of Israel because they rejected Messiah. And they would say, hey, this shouldn't be a mystery to anybody. Jesus predicted this. And they would say, he predicted the time frame, too. So here is a quote from Jesus. This is Matthew 24. Jesus talking. He said this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Does that sound familiar? When is this going to happen? Verse 34 of Matthew 24. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So my preterist friends believe that this prediction was fulfilled within the lifetime of that generation, specifically 40 years later when Jerusalem was wiped out. Now if you know your history, you know that in 70 AD, a Roman general named Titus swept into Jerusalem with Roman armies and basically laid siege to the city. He killed over a million Jews, the first holocaust, and he basically obliterated their temple. So, the preterists contend that that is the judgment that's being referred to here. It already happened. It happened in the first century. Peter was not only explaining the pouring out of the Spirit, but was also using the rest of Joel's prophecy to warn his listeners about the judgment that was getting ready to come in 40 years. My friends may be right, but I do think there's some unanswered questions in this view, most notably the book of Revelation, which most scholars agree was written after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, written after that, Revelation contains a lot of this same kind of language, right? Which would make it seem that it's referring to events still yet to come. A second view, many Christians hold this view, is the futurist view, the futurist viewpoint, and this view holds that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, although terrible, was too localized of an event to fit the scope of the judgment that's being described in these passages. And the futurists would contend that Christ did not literally return in 70 AD either, which is what they believe will happen on the day of the Lord. So futurists believe that all of this is still yet to come. Then there's a third group called the dual fulfillment folks, and I'm in that camp for the moment. This is where I land. My cohorts in this view believe that while some of those prophecies were certainly fulfilled in 70 AD, that others of these prophetic signs were more global in scale and don't seem to fit that event. 
we believe that just like a lot of the other Old Testament prophecies, this prophecy had both a near and a far component. We hold a kind of telescopic view of prophecies that sees a partial fulfillment, in this case, in the first century. Yeah, it was partially fulfilled then, but the, the full carrying out of this prophecy will be later, that there's a final global fulfillment that will take place in the end times, and certainly we would join the futurists in saying that Christ, we don't think Christ came back in 70 AD in a way that lines up with what these prophecies describe. So you need to study this on your own. You need to decide again where you land. There's no shortage of YouTube videos on each of these positions. I did a more in-depth teaching about three years ago that you can uh, check into online. Here's what I'll say, though. Most all scholars believe the Bible teaches that there is still a future return of Jesus and a coming judgment. Even if they believe that some or all of that was fulfilled in 70 A.D., almost all Bible scholars say, you know what, Jesus is coming back again, and he is coming as a judge. It's an inescapable biblical teaching and reality that Jesus is coming back. Even though our culture scoffs at this notion that Christ is going to return and judge the nations, they should consider these scriptures just listen I've strung some scriptures together here and I I want you to listen to this see if you draw the same conclusion just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so then each of us will give an account of himself to God Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, capital M, a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before that throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So judgment day is coming. The Bible's very clear. We're in the last 
of the last days and the return of Jesus and the coming judgments have never been closer and nearer than they are right now. And good preaching doesn't skip over that. Good preaching, biblical preaching, does not try to do the end run around some of these harder truths, does not try to shave the hard edges off of them, even though it's unpopular in our culture. Which leads us to a final aspect of the significance of the day of Pentecost. What does Pentecost mean? It means, yes, that prophecy has been fulfilled. It means that the last days have begun, which are going to culminate one day in Jesus judging the world. And third, thankfully, the events of the day of Pentecost mean that the, means that the gospel is now freely offered to all. And the risen and ascended Jesus will save all who believe. I'm sure just like you did a few moments ago, the crowd there got very quiet when Peter was proclaiming the judgment that was coming. But I am grateful that he didn't leave it there. You're condemned. He didn't leave it there because Joel didn't leave it there. Because God didn't leave it there. Oh, how glorious to be able to preach the good news that we can be saved. Delivered from that judgment. Verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's judgment. Jesus himself, when he was here, when he walked this earth, said it this way, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Listen, understand this, please. There are a lot of incentives that that preachers and, and Christians use to try to urge people to trust in Jesus. I've used some of these. Sometimes, you know, we look, we, we're talking to someone and we, we say, you know, you should become a Christian because then you'll have peace and joy in your life. Or you should become a Christian, then you'll have more meaning and purpose. And there's truth in that. There's truth in that. Or... I've heard preachers say, you know, become a Christian, then your marriage will get better, or you'll, you'll be a better parent, or you'll have less worry and less stress, or you'll be more successful. Or you'll achieve your dreams, you'll have a better life. Some would maybe want to urge people to trust Christ by saying, well, you know, if you really want to make a difference in this world and make the world a better place, then become a Christian. And again, there's truth to that. But when I read passages like this, it it takes me back to the main reason why people need Jesus. Like the main, primary, prominent reason. Right? Because look, you you could present any of those other things to to an unsaved, non-Christian person. And you know what? I've had this happen. They might say, well, look, I already have a lot of peace. I'm feeling pretty good about my life. My marriage is good. People think I'm successful. I am making a difference in this world. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't need Jesus for those things. It's going fine. Because those are not the main reasons that people need Jesus. The main reason people need Jesus is so that on the day of judgment, when a holy God 
puts their light, life in the light and examines their life and uncovers all of the sin and rebellion and idolatry and failure to love him with all their heart and failure to love their neighbors as themselves every moment of every day. The main reason people need Jesus is so that they will have a defense on the day of judgment that will stand. It's true. On that day, all people will want more than anything to know that during this life, they trusted that God already judged all of their sins in the bloodied body of Jesus the Son. They'll be desperate to be able to say sincerely, Almighty, Holy God, I have no righteousness of my own, but I do have a righteousness, an alien righteousness that was given to me when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. He gave me his record of 100% obedience to your holy law, and he took my sins, and that's my only plea, that's my only defense. Frankly, that's the only acceptable defense that's going to fly with God. Do you have the righteous record of my son imputed to your life? Without that, there's only the prospect of fearful judgment. Isn't it awesome that God did everything necessary for people to be delivered from his holy wrath? And why did he do it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish. That's judgment. Will miss judgment, will avoid being judged for their sins, but have everlasting life. Jesus said it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes upon him who sent me has eternal life. That's present possession. Has it now. You don't get it when you die. You have it in this moment when you trust Christ. He will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is the main reason why people need Jesus to be saved from eternal judgment for their sins. Our sins are judged in one of two places, right? on a cross, in the body of the perfect, sinless Son of God, or in the lake of fire, forever and ever. And I would say to you this morning, if you are not yet a true Christian, if you are not yet a true believer in Christ, a born-again, saved, redeemed, regenerated, made-alive person, I implore you today to become one. God did all that was necessary for you to become saved. In fact, he says it's a gift. Can you believe it? You can't work for it. You can't earn it. There's not enough money. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, the Bible says. You have to open your hands and your heart and say, you did this for me? No way. Are you serious? You love me? You placed my sins on your perfect son and punished him in my place? You've got to be kidding me. This is good news. For by grace you have been saved, the Bible says, through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a what? 
gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. Jesus purchased it with his blood. Anyone can be saved, as Joel wrote and Peter quoted, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It would be tragic for someone within the sound of my voice today to walk out of this room not saved. Wouldn't you agree? Will you bow your heads with me? Many of you I know, I know that you know Christ. He's in your life. You have trusted him. You have his spirit. I'm, I just rejoice with you in that. But perhaps there's somebody here this morning who, as I've been talking, the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to the fact that you're not really sure that you are saved. It's a Bible word. And I wanted to give you the opportunity today. If the Spirit is drawing you to Christ in this moment, you can respond to him very simply. You don't have to have a big theological vocabulary. You can just say, Lord Jesus, I know I've fallen short of your mark. But I'm trusting that you lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. And you died for me in my place. Taking the punishment that I deserve. And you rose from the grave. Defeating death and sin and hell. And you, I encourage you to just say this to Jesus. Jesus, I'm calling upon your name right now. Right now. I'm not calling upon myself. I'm not calling upon that pastor up there. I'm calling upon you, Jesus, to come into my life. Save me. Redeem me. Give me your Holy Spirit that I might begin to live in a way that honors Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Pray that prayer to him right now out of a sincere heart. This is right where the text leads us today, doesn't it? If that's you today, would you just lift your hand so I can remember you in my prayers? Anybody like that this morning? Thank you, Lord, for um, the wonderful gift of salvation the beautiful gift of your Holy Spirit. I ask, we ask, give us everything you have for us, every gift that Jesus purchased by his shed blood for us. We pray you give it to us. Lord, we long to know you in that special way. You've opened the door into your presence and we praise you for it. Lord, may we have this message on our lips as we walk throughout our days and throughout our weeks as we interact with people at work, at the office, on campus, at school. May we have this message on our lips. May you open doors to speak words of truth to our friends who so desperately need to hear whether they realize it or not. And we thank you that anyone who calls on your name will be saved. Save many people in our city, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.